seated. And as you're seated, I want to invite you to join me in prayer. Let me remind you this morning that corporate prayer is just that. It's one voice leading, but all together praying is one voice together to the Lord. So let's do that as we pray. Father, thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in Jesus Christ through his death and through the grace and through the forgiveness that we have because of his death as we trust in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we come to you today thanking you for your great grace and for your great mercy. And, Father, as your word commands us to pray for kings and for all in high positions, we pray for President Biden together this morning. We pray for Vice President Harris. We pray for Governor Kristi Noem. And we pray for those who lead us in other ways with other kinds of responsibilities. We pray for wisdom for these who lead us. We pray that we might have freedom as your people to be able to share our faith and to follow our faith without being inhibited or penalized. But God, we trust your sovereign plan and pray for revival in your church in this nation. Even if persecution will be the catalyst that you use to purify and to revitalize your church. So God, we pray for that. We pray for purification. We pray for revitalization in your church throughout our land. But Father, we pray not only for the church in this country, we also pray for the church in Laos, where there are a small, relatively small number of believers. We pray for this country where there are, as best we know, 106 unreached people groups. When added together, almost 5.5 million people who are unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ in this predominantly Buddhist nation. We pray for Laos, God. We pray for these believers. Strengthen them. Help them to be built up in their most holy faith. And God, would you, the Lord of the harvest, thrust out laborers into your harvest field, and we think particularly of this country, the country of Laos today, and lift it to you. Father, we thank you for the promise that there will be people from every nation, meaning every people group throughout the world, ultimately, who are around the throne and who worship you. And so, Father, we pray that we would give sacrificially, that we would pray fervently, and that we would go willingly, if you call us, to take the gospel where it has never been proclaimed. I pray that our church would play an essential part in the mission that you've given your church being accomplished and being finished before Christ comes. But Father, we also think of missions that need to be done even close by. And so we pray for there to be a gospel-centered church at Pine Ridge that becomes over time indigenous, one that is faithful and fruitful throughout many generations. God, we lift this request to you. Show our church how we could and how we should 
be involved in the planting of a healthy church among the Lakota people, particularly at Pine Ridge. God, we know you love these people and all of the peoples of the world, and so we pray that you would use us and that you would lead us to know what that looks like as a church. And as we think about church planting, we particularly again today thank you for Redeeming Grace Church here in Rapid City. Thank you for Pastor Josh and for Bree and for their family and for the other families from our church that went out to be the core group for this new congregation almost a year and a half ago now. God, thank you for how you have worked and how you are working, and we pray for their service. As we're meeting here and they're meeting there, we pray your blessings on the work there. And God, we thank you also, particularly as we think about Redeeming Grace Church, we thank you for Gary Lydell and his family who've moved here to Rapid City from Michigan recently, just this past week, for Gary to join the Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship Program at Redeeming Grace Church. God, would you bless Gary and his family as they adjust to living in a new place and as he starts taking classes and as he begins to have opportunities to engage practically in ministry to prepare in the future for pastoral ministry. God bless Gary and his family. And Father, as I think about Pastor Josh leaving from our church staff to plant this church, I thank you for the two pastors that I'm privileged to serve alongside as vocational pastors. Thank you for Pastor Joel. Thank you for Pastor Tanner. God, thank you for Pastor Joel as our pastor of worship for the way he leads us in biblical worship and the way he helps us to rejoice in what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for his family. Thank you in your providence for bringing them here. And thank you for Pastor Tanner, our pastor of family and student ministry. God, as he works with children and youth and families, I pray that you would bless him and use him. And we thank you for the for the unity and for the camaraderie that we share together as vocational pastors. God, thank you for them. And I pray also finally for our elders as we meet tomorrow evening. God, would you guide us as we seek to administer and to minister in this church as you've called us to. Help us to shepherd your flock here well and faithfully. And Father, as we hear your word in these next few minutes, our prayer is that the preaching of your word would strengthen the hearts of believers, and that the preaching of your word would also call unbelievers to receive Christ's death as their own and as the only sacrifice for sins. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you as we begin to take your Bible and turn in the book of Hebrews. We've been making our way now for quite some time, verse by verse through the book of Hebrews, and we're in the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. By, by the way, by way of an announcement, we will do again this summer what we've done now for the past three summers. We're going to be going back to the book of Psalms, and we'll be walking through a section of the Psalms this summer, beginning on the last weekend of this month. That will begin our summer schedule. And just as another quick reminder, in the summer, we don't have life classes at 9 o'clock and so we don't begin our service at 10.30 as we normally do throughout most of the year. In the summer, we begin at 10 a.m. So go ahead and put that in your head and maybe somewhere on a piece of paper that on the last Sunday of this month, we'll actually begin that summer schedule and we'll have our service beginning at 10 
a.m. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 16 are the verses that we're going to be focusing on this morning. And if you don't have a Bible of your own with you this morning, there are Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and I hope you'll reach underneath and take one of those blue Bibles and follow along on page 1009. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have the blue Bible, from underneath the chair in front of you. It is our gift to you. We are more than glad to have you take it and to read it. We would love for you to do that. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 7 and going down through verse 16. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have no benefit for those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God." We prayed just a few moments ago together about the country of Laos. I read just this week about Christians in Laos. A very small number of people on this Buddhist, in this Buddhist nation are followers of Jesus Christ. And almost inevitably, when a person in this culture trusts in Christ and confesses Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they are forced to leave the villages that they are in and that they have grown up in for most of their life. Because, again, the Buddhist faith won't tolerate those who turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Christians in Laos are rejected by their families and by those who are like family to them for most of their lives. They're isolated from their families. The book of Hebrews, as we've been seeing for the last several months, is a book that was written to Hebrews who confessed Christ as their Savior, as their Messiah. 
And we've seen in the context of the book that many of them obviously are being pressured and some even persecuted by their own people, by the other Hebrews who have not confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so they are also under a great deal of stress. And essentially in our text this morning, the writer of Hebrews is saying that they are to go to him, Jesus, outside the camp. You may have noticed at the beginning of verse 13 in our reading the word therefore, which signals that a conclusion is coming, right? Verse 13 begins that way, therefore let us go to him, meaning Jesus, outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. In other words, these Hebrews who had confessed Christ were now going to need to go outside of. They already had certainly begun this process, but they were going to need, the writer says, to go outside of the camp of Judaism. Those who were still practicing the faith as given to their forefathers under the old covenant. And this would likely result, and for many probably already had, resulted in them being separated from their families, their families rejecting them for doing this. And so that's the essence of what we're going to see in our text. But let's notice several things that we're specifically and that they were specifically encouraged to do. The first thing we see at the beginning of our text is this. They were encouraged and we are being encouraged in these first few verses to be steadfast in truth. To be steadfast in truth. And as the passage begins, he says essentially this, be steadfast in truth like your leaders in the past and like Jesus Christ. Be steadfast in truth. Verse 7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke, notice that's past tense, those who spoke to you, The Word of God. Remember the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So he begins here by saying, remember your leaders, past leaders. These are leaders who have now died. And he's saying, remember them. They spoke the Word of God to you, the truth to you. And, he says, remember or consider also the outcome of their faith or their way of life. Now, the word outcome here literally means exit, a reference to their death. And what he's saying is remember how they not only lived, but how they died. Trusting in Jesus Christ, confessing Jesus Christ as their one and only hope in life and in death. They had died in faith. They had finished the race that the writer of Hebrews talks about just a little bit before chapter 13. They had finished this long-distance race called faith, and they had finished well. They had kept the faith as Paul says, toward the end of his life. And he says, 
Remember them, consider them, imitate their faith. There's something powerful about people who have gone before us and have now died, who've left us a legacy of faithfulness to Jesus Christ, who've been steadfast in their faith in spite of all kinds of opposition and all kinds of pressure in the opposite direction. So what I want to encourage you to do in light of the way our text begins this morning is this. If you are a person who confesses Christ, I would encourage you to read about faithful Christian leaders who have gone before us. Read Christian biography is what I'm saying. You'll find it very encouraging. You'll find the examples of these leaders, Christian leaders in the past, very encouraging. And let me get real specific. Let me recommend a book that you might consider if you'd like to do this. The book is called 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy, written by John Piper. What he does in that book is this. He takes really the life stories of 21 outstanding Christian leaders in the past who were exemplary in many ways that we can imitate and that we can learn from, who lived and died faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, 21 servants of sovereign joy. And what Piper does is he takes what could be a huge biography and he summarizes the lives of these Christian leaders from the past so that we get a sense of who they were and what they did. And I would encourage you to consider that. I have found it to be incredibly helpful and inspiring. Another thing I would want you to consider as we think about these leaders that are referred to at the beginning of this chapter is this. Would you pray, I'm asking you specifically, especially if you're a member of this church, would you pray for those of us who are leaders in this church right now? Pray that we will be faithful, that we will speak the word of God to you faithfully, and that we will live our life in such a way that we will in the end die strong faithful to the truth, steadfast in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that for us. I referred to this song several weeks ago that I thought again about this week that I remember when I was younger. One verse goes like this, Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. And I want you to pray that for your pastors and elders, that we would live and die faithful to Jesus Christ, that we would finish the course And that those who come behind us would look back and be able to say that we were faithful. Read about faithful leaders who have died. Pray for faithful leaders until we die. I would encourage you and ask you to do that. But one of the things we need to understand is while we can learn a great deal from those who've gone before us who were human like us, fully human like us, Our perfect example and our only permanent example is Jesus Christ and steadfastness to the truth. That's why the next verse says, Jesus Christ 
is the same yesterday and today and forever. We can look to leaders who have died and who've been faithful as examples of steadfastness, but Jesus is the ultimate and the unending example of steadfastness and faithfulness to the truth. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. What an amazing and an important thing for us to hold on to. Jesus never changes. He cannot change for the better because he is perfect. And because he is perfect, he also cannot change for the worse. He is always the same. He is always steadfast, and he is our example. Paul said something interesting that helps us put these two things together that we see at the beginning of our text. Paul said, as he wrote to the Corinthians, be followers of me, even as I am of Christ. And so we need both, and it's good to have both. But when we follow leaders, we only follow them insofar as they follow Christ. And leaders don't always follow Christ as we should. That's why I beg you to pray for God's grace and for God's help for us as we seek to do that. But Christ is the one who is steadfast and who never changes. So the writer says here as we begin our text, be steadfast in truth like your leaders in the past and like Jesus Christ And then at the beginning of verse 9, there's a sense in which he's saying, be steadfast in the truth instead of being led away by diverse and strange teachings. The beginning of verse 9 says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, which implies that there must have been teaching that had the potential to lead them away, teaching that was diverse, teaching that was strange, that is, that was false teaching. Now, what was the teaching that he's concerned about here? We'll come to that in just a second, but let me pause for just a second and mention this. Some of you who've been around for a while have heard me share this before, but when I went to a Christian college and became a religion major because I felt like God had called me to preach and to be a pastor, I heard diverse and strange teachings in many of my religion classes. And by God's grace, I was not led away. I grew up in a Bible-believing church, believing that every word in the Bible was God's word. And yet, in those classes, I was taught things that were totally inconsistent with that. But the most sad thing that I experienced was looking around me and over the course of a class or a semester, seeing so many of those in the class with me who were led away by diverse and strange teaching. Truth matters. And God's word, the psalmist tells us, God's word is truth. We can trust it and we need to be steadfast in it. So that's what we see as we begin our text. But notice secondly, after, told, after being told to be steadfast in truth, as verse 9 continues and through verse 12, we're told to be strengthened by grace. Be steadfast in truth. Be strengthened by grace. 
Now notice how the rest of verse 9 reads because it helps us to get an idea of what the false teachings may have been that he's referred to in the beginning of verse 9. He says, continuing after that, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, and notice the next three words, not by foods. That's a hint. That indicates something about what they were being taught that was false. And then he goes on to say about the foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. So there were people who were devoted to foods in some sense, and even though they were devoted to foods, it didn't benefit them. It really had no lasting or real benefit. Most likely, what this refers to is the dietary laws that are found in the Old Testament, therefore a part of the Old Covenant that these people had grown up with that came from the Old Testament, God's commands to those under the Old Covenant. And so there were probably those who were family and like family to these who had confessed faith in Christ, who were also themselves Hebrews, and they were possibly being pressured by their family to sort of mix Christianity with Judaism, to mix the new covenant with the old covenant. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying you can't do that. You can't do that because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Christ has fulfilled all that the old covenant was ultimately foretelling and foreshadowing. And so if you add anything to Christ, then you cease to have grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. If you trust in anything beyond Christ to contribute to or, is, or believe that it's necessary for your salvation, then you've ceased really to believe the Christian gospel. Not by foods. Not by foods, we're told in verse 9. But before that, he says it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace instead of foods. So whatever was being promised by those who kept the old covenant, who were trying to keep those or get those who had confessed Christ to do at least some of what they had done before, what they evidently thought was this food was somehow going to strengthen them in in their relationship with God. But that is not at all the case, the writer tells us. And then notice what he says as he continues in verse 10. We meaning himself as the author and those who've confessed Christ, and therefore us as Christians, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent or tabernacle have no right to eat. What's he saying? He's saying those of us who are confessing Christ and trusting in Christ and his sacrifice, we have an altar. Why does he say that? Because in the tent or in the tabernacle and then later in the temple there were altars and animals were slain and placed on those altars as sacrifices for sin or their blood was sprinkled on those altars to atone for sin 
And now what has happened, the gospel says, is that Jesus has fulfilled that. So our altar is the cross of Christ. Our altar is the cross of Christ. That's where the sacrifice was made that all of the animals before that that were sacrificed, were ultimate, that they were all ultimately pointing to the sacrifice that Jesus made upon the cross and Judah, those who were still under the old covenant have no right to eat from that altar. Meaning, because they don't have faith, they don't have access, they don't have the right to eat from that altar. But only those of us who have trusted in Jesus as our one and only sacrifice. Then in verse 11, he talks about the bodies of animals that were, under the old covenant, offered on altars killed upon the altars, their blood sprinkled upon the altars for sin, as sacrifices for sin. He says, interestingly, that they then, after that, these animals, their carcasses were to be burned outside the camp. So here's the way the Old Testament said it. There were certain animals that were to be sacrificed on certain altars on certain days. And then after they were sacrificed or their blood was put on these altars, those animals were to be taken outside of the camp of the people of Israel and they were to be burned. And that's not insignificant because verse 12 tells us that similarly Jesus suffered outside the gate, meaning the gate of the city of Jerusalem. He was taken outside the camp or the city we could say. Outside the gate And that's not a coincidence that these animals that were sacrificed and their blood sprinkled on altars to atone for sin, that they were burned outside of the camp. And the fact that Jesus was crucified outside of the gate of the city is not without significance. It's meant to show us that Jesus' sacrifice fulfilled those sacrifices. What they pointed to, Jesus had done. They pointed to forgiveness. Jesus provided forgiveness through his death outside the gate. But notice, I think this is interesting. He talks about grace in the second part of verse 9, and that grace is what strengthens our heart as believers, and it's not food. And so I think there's a parallel here. We are to eat grace rather than food or a certain diet, eating certain foods, not eating certain foods. That doesn't strengthen our heart. That's not what nourishes our soul and our heart. It is grace that we receive through the sacrifice of Jesus who is our altar, whose cross is our altar. Some of you may remember this. Jesus said this, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have eternal life. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood do have eternal life. What did Jesus mean by that? He meant that just like we eat food and receive it into our bodies, we also must feast on Christ in the sense that we receive his death 
into our hearts and the grace that is made possible to us through Jesus' death, by faith we chew on it, mentally we chew on it, what he did for us on the cross and what it means. And as we do that, we are nourished and strengthened, our hearts are, by grace. I want you to think about something this morning. If you're a person who acknowledges the name of God through Jesus Christ, if you claim to be a Christian, do you regularly feast on the grace that is yours and mine through our faith in Jesus who died so that we could be recipients of the mercy of God and the grace of God that we do not deserve. That's how we become disciples and that's how we grow stronger and remain strong as disciples of Jesus Christ. The book of Lamentations talks about the fact that we have new mercies every morning. Every day we should begin our day rejoicing in the mercies that are ours every single day, the grace that is ours every single day through the cross of Jesus Christ. And maybe there are those of you who are here and you're not sure about where you stand in terms of faith, in terms of your relationship with Christ. Let me urge you to do this. Receive this grace Receive God's grace, God's unmerited favor and forgiveness that can be yours through trusting in Jesus and his sacrifice on the altar of the cross. Receive his death as your own and as your only hope of being in right standing before God and being the recipient of his grace. The grace of the cross The grace of the cross assures our forgiveness and inspires our holiness as those who are the people of God. The Bible talks about how sometimes people misuse and misunderstand the grace of God. The idea that God freely forgives and forever forgives those who believe. Some see grace as permission to sin. I'm forgiven. God's already forgiven me of all my sins. That's a misunderstanding of grace. Grace does not give us permission to sin, but what it does is it gives us power to not sin. It gives us the power and the motivation to be holy in gratitude for the forgiveness that is ours. Trust in Jesus and in his sacrifice as the only place, the only altar where a sacrifice has been made or will ever be made that can atone for your sins and put you in right standing before God. I want us to also look now as we continue at one more statement that might summarize what we're told in these first verses. We've seen the call to be steadfast in truth, the call to be strengthened by grace, and then in the last part of our text, the call to be separated with Christ. The call to be separated with Christ, verses 13 and 14. Therefore, let us go to him, Christ, outside the camp. He suffered reproach and was crucified outside the camp, outside the gate, and bear the reproach he endured. 
For here we have no lasting city. Remember we saw earlier in Hebrews that we're looking for the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God that will one day come down to earth, literally. We have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. These Hebrews who had confessed Christ had to make a decision. Were they going to be steadfast in what they had confessed and what they had been taught about Jesus Christ? Were they going to continue to be faithful and to stand with him? The writer seems to be saying, if you're going to continue to be faithful to Christ and to stand with Christ, that means you're going to have to go where he is, and that's outside the camp. You're going to have to be willing to be rejected by and isolated from social groups and maybe even religious groups that you've been a part of if you're going to be steadfast in your faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus said something that's relevant to what we're seeing here. Jesus said this, unless you hate your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, and even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. What does that mean? It means what we're talking about here. It doesn't literally mean that you despise your parents or that you wish them ill. That's not what he means when he says hate your father, mother, sister, brother. He's using that word relative, relatively. What you may have to do at some point, Jesus was saying, is this. You may have to choose Christ instead of your father and mother, instead of your brothers and sisters because of your faith. To be faithful to him may mean being isolated, rejected, separated from them. And that's exactly what the readers of the book of Hebrews were facing. They were about to, and some had already begun to, feel the rejection of their families, their fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, their families, and those who were like family to them because they continued, if they continued to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And then our section ends, verses 15 and 16, by saying essentially this, and I think this is interesting. He's saying to them, leave Leave the old covenant. Under the old covenant, sacrifices were made for sin continually. Leave that because the sacrifice that fulfills all of those has been made. Jesus has died. You don't have to continually bring animals and sacrifice them and put their blood on altars anymore. But that doesn't mean that there aren't sacrifices that you shouldn't continually make now that you are a Christian. And that's what he talks about in verses 15 and 16. We still continue to make continual sacrifices now that we have come to Christ. Just we see that none of them are for sin because Jesus' sacrifice was for sin. And we see two kinds very quickly. In verse 15, we see the first kind, which falls under the category of our words. Our words are means through which we can worship. Remember toward the end of chapter 12, the book of Hebrews challenges us to offer to God acceptable worship. 
to offer to God in our daily lives acceptable worship. How do we do that? Well, we do that with our words. We do that with our words. And specifically, verse 15 says, through him, meaning Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. What he's saying here is, if you have confessed with your mouth the name of God revealed in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, then what you should be doing is continually offering up to God a sacrifice of praise. Not because it adds to your faith or is um, something that works alongside your faith to put you in right standing before God. No, you are in right standing before God if you're trusting in Christ's death. His sacrifice. This is a sacrifice not for salvation, but from salvation. If you've been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, then flowing out of that should come praise with your lips. Now, our singing on Sundays is a big part of that. But I think the idea here, particularly using the word continually, is that we are to do this in our daily lives as Christians. So if you acknowledge God in Christ as your God, something to think about. Do you begin each day singing or speaking praise to God? And do you throughout the day verbalize your praise to God who sent his son Jesus for your sins? Our words, our words, we should be using our words to worship God continually. That's what verse 15 is saying. And then finally, verse 16, notice another category of sacrifices that we make as Christians, our works. Our works. Verse 16 says this, do not neglect to do good. That is good works. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Our works, that's another kind of sacrifice. Now again, good works are not added to faith for salvation. No. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, right? That's how we are saved, his sacrifice for us. But our good works are not added to our faith for salvation, but because of our salvation, we do good. We do good works. We're not saved by faith and works. We're saved by faith that works, because faith works, right? Faith moves us to worship God through doing good. And then he specifically, the writer of Hebrews, refers to one way that we can do good, sharing what you have. Sharing what you have is one of these good deeds, good works that you and I can and should do as those who've been fa saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Sharing what you have. I think the implication is with those who maybe need 
with those who don't have what they need. In the book of Acts and in the book of Galatians, reference is made to what's called the Jerusalem Conference. Paul went to Jerusalem and the apostles in Jerusalem talked to Paul and at the Jerusalem Conference they confirmed that Paul wasn't preaching a different message though he was preaching to Gentiles primarily and they were preaching to Jews primarily. The leaders in Jerusalem said that they were preaching the same message. But what's interesting is when Paul wrote about that later in Galatians, he said in addition to that, that they also, that is the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they also ask that we would remember the poor. And then Paul says to the Galatians, the very thing I was eager to do. Now what does that mean? They confirmed Paul's gospel as being the true gospel the same gospel that they had received and that they were preaching. And then they say, and yes, one thing we want to make sure you don't do. We don't want you to forget the poor. We want you and those you preach to, to remember the poor. What does that mean? Does that mean sharing with the poor is a part of the gospel? No, it doesn't. But it does mean this, it is a clear implication of the gospel. Giving to the poor is not a part of how we are made right with God. But it is a product of being made right with God. We care about those who don't have. By the way, sharing what you have is also helpful in fighting what we talked about last week, right? The warning we saw last week about the love of money. In this same chapter, there's a warning given just before our text today that we not love money. And one of the ways to fight the love of money is to continue to share, to continually share what we have with others, to be givers, to be givers. Paul said when they asked him to do this, to remember the poor, this was the very thing he said that I was eager to do. Paul was eager to do this. I want to say something that's really important, I think, this morning. Being eager to help the poor does not make you a liberal Christian. It makes you a biblical Christian. It makes you a biblical Christian. It makes you like Jesus, and it makes you like Paul. One of the ways Paul described our salvation was like this. Though he was rich, meaning Jesus before the incarnation in heaven, on the throne, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. He became a man and he died on a cross. So that we through his poverty might be made rich. That's the way Paul explained the gospel to a church that he was talking to about an offering for the poor. Particularly believers who were experiencing famine in another part of the world. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's not saying this is a part of the gospel, but he is saying this is a product of the gospel, and this is something that portrays the gospel. The gospel is generosity. The gospel is grace. And we should show that ourselves to others, just like God has shown us, those of us who are poor. Poor, spiritually having a debt that we could never pay. 
bankrupt morally and spiritually, poor. And he became poor so that we through his poverty might be made rich, that we might know the riches of grace and glory throughout all eternity. Throughout all eternity. My prayer is today that some of you for the first time would say, I, I need that grace. I want that grace that's given freely through Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice. God, have mercy on me. God, show your grace, your undeserved kindness and favor to me as a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. And for those of us who've said that, let's keep feeding on this grace. Let's keep feasting on this grace that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. Almost all of us know, if we know a hymn, almost all of us know John Newton's him, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, tolls, and snares, I've already come. Tis grace has led me safe thus far. Tis grace will lead me home. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And what will we sing? Grace. Grace. That's the only way we get there. And when we understand that, we become incredibly gracious with other people. It's a contradiction for a church or for a Christian to say they believe in grace and to be ungracious to sinners. God help us. God help us to live lives that are aligned with the gospel. And for those of you who are here who haven't trusted in Christ, my prayer is that you would to do today do just that. Let's bow. God, we thank you today for this great grace. This great grace that we have through the cross of Jesus Christ. We have this altar. And we are receiving. Those of us who've believed, we have received and we continue to receive by faith and to trust in that grace that you've promised us through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that Jesus was willing to suffer and to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Thank you for his cross, our altar. In Jesus' name, amen.